to episode 22 of the Tarsan's Diplomat, the satirical thriller set at the Canadian mission in Brussels. Please keep the feedback, funny stories, and ideas for McGregor's sequel coming in. Keith has been enjoying getting back in touch with a number of colleagues who remember his glory days back when he was the 12th most important Canadian diplomat in Brussels. You can email him, keyholiday at tarsansdiplomat.com. And now, here he is with episode 22. The Tarsans Diplomat, Chapter 25, I Spring Into Action I knew exactly what to do. I took Lefranc to lunch at La Renda Frique. Jean-Christophe loves to show off when a regular brings someone new. During the meal, I let slip to Jean-Christophe that I was writing a book on the movers and shakers of Brussels. His anger was still fresh at Henry Kissinger for neglecting to mention La Renda Frique in his book, and Jean-Christophe leaped enthusiastically for the bait. After taking copious notes on several of his anecdotes and enjoying a complimentary digestif, I spoke to him privately and told him I needed one more thing. He was reluctant, pointing out that La Reine d'Afrique is supposed to be a culinary sanctuary. The prospect of an extensive mention in my book, plus a wad of my dwindling supply of euros, helped convince him. Lefranc and I toured the private rooms, and Jean-Christophe showed us the one he planned to use for Monsieur Horton. It had a small fireplace, side table, and various Flemish paintings. A close inspection of a still life on the side wall revealed a small hole in the wall, which came out in the corridor between the kitchen and the pantry. A sanctuary, I asked, raising an eyebrow. Jean-Christophe did his best to hide his embarrassment. It is imperative for me to see into the private room, he spluttered in French. I must arrive at the perfect moment. You can't have me barging in when the main dishes are half-finished like a waiter at some American steakhouse. We agreed everything with Jean-Christophe, and I set off to find Van de Vleert. When Kennedy and I went to see him to plan Can Do Canada, I have to admit that I failed to tell her how well I knew him. As young diplomats, we'd been posted to the same city twice. I knew several things about him. First, he was a creature of habit. Second, he was a spy novel aficionado, like me, as well as a collector of spy paraphernalia. There was a Flemish eatery near Van de Vleert's office. It was one of those small, family-run Brussels places that Van de Vleert would enjoy, especially if he was suffering nostalgic urges as he often did, to reconnect with the pickled herring and bitterballen of his youth. Fortunately, I spotted him instead at Le Pain Quotidien down the street. It's a chain of cafes that serves good coffee and sandwiches with country-style bread. You sit at long, shared tables. Van de Vleert's laptop was open. I could see as he closed an article on Your Active and opened a new one on Mlex. The man read Brussels Insider News even in his free time. I ordered a cafe creme and took a seat beside him. You want to buy precious stones, I asked. He looked at me, his eye twinkled. Do I look like a man who buys precious stones? Perhaps it is bad for your caste, I replied. There is no caste when men go to look for Tarkian. He laughed. Ah, Kim, he said nostalgically. The little pause before look. I should read it to the children. I asked him what he was reading, and we discussed the fad for detective novels set in Nazi Berlin. Enjoyable enough, said Van de Vleert. But it gets a bit silly that Heidrich or Goering have to make a cameo in each one. How did they have enough time to commit war crimes if they were drinking beer with private detectives all the time? After a few more civilities, he turned to me. You're not going to ask me to help you with something substantive on Can Do Canada, are you? I'm very sorry how it turned out. He spoke about the trade mission with sympathy, as if it were a friendly family dog run over by a car with diplomatic plates. No, no, I said. 
The Frankenstein canola and baby seals will have to do their own dirty work. This is about Julian's murder. I told him about Sherlock's incompetence, the inactivity of the Belgian police, and the Westcan dossier. The Belgian police are not one of the country's finer points, he admitted. As is customary, we made no attempt to identify what Belgium's finer points were. He knew and liked Julian, and despite a career in the European Commission, still had a strong sense of fair play. How can I help you, he asked. Do you still collect spy gadgets, I said. I need to bug a room. He looked at me sharply. Really, I said. Well, he replied, I had an old listening device, but I lent it to the Belgian Resistance Museum. I didn't know it existed. What, said Van de Vleert, the museum or the Belgian Resistance? We laughed. He agreed to get the gear back from the museum. I picked it up that evening from his home and returned to our safe house at unit number 21. I kept an eye out as I entered to make sure no other Canadians in the building were in the lobby. Lefranc was already home, sipping Lagavulin and reading with his slippers up on the coffee table. My daughter bullied Mr. Mole into turning over the faxes. What a girl, he said proudly, waving a handful of papers. But they're absolute drivel. They were difficult to read, having been faxed once to Mr. Mole and a second time to Violet's office. Several had been badly damaged in Mr. Mole's recycling bin, but they were legible. Canada-Belgium Chamber of Commerce to discuss bringing Canada-Belgian trade relationship into 21st century, blared one press release. Canadian Zoo lends four beavers to Brussels' counterpart, said another. I looked at Lefranc apologetically. We blew your cover with your daughter? For these? Now she knows you kept your passport, too. Lefranc waved it off. But she got the leak, too, just like you predicted. I sat down and flipped through the pages, while Lefranc poured me some port and put some Stilton and crackers on a plate. I moved the old Chackley de Decker duty-free invoice that Lefranc was using as a coaster for the port to one side, and spread out Julian's double X file and the facts from Mr. Mole. They were the same document, but different copies. The Mr. Mole version had no underlining, and it looked like someone had cut the top off the page to remove the name of the person who'd printed it out. The date stamp on the Mr. Mole version says one in the morning, which would be seven here, just like Flitch said, pointed out Lefranc. Jackpot, I replied. So it wasn't Julian's copy that got leaked, unless Julian was carrying a different and non-underlined version of the telex in the duty officer's briefcase. That seems unlikely, said Lefranc, but you never know. Maybe he was trying to cover his tracks. He gets an incriminating telex, then he makes a clean copy. Then he marks up his own and puts it in his files so he can show it to people later if there's an investigation. But if you're that paranoid, I replied, you would never fax it from the embassy downstairs. You'd use a hotel business center or a brown envelope. Why would you ever use the embassy fax, said Lefranc. You'd have to be either in a hurry, or assuming no one would ever check, or if they did check, they would think your leak was just another stupid Belgian press release. At least we know it wasn't the French, I replied, or the Russians or even Ian Culloden who leaked it. Which makes me all the more interested to hear what our colleagues say at La Renda Afrique tomorrow. I was still brooding about the leak when we arrived at La Renda Afrique the next afternoon. If anyone had an advanced team keeping the restaurant under surveillance, they would have seen two men in blazers struggling out of a cab with two large, old-fashioned suitcases. Did the resistance really jump out of planes with these things? complained Lefranc, as Jean-Christophe opened the door and ushered us in. I went to the private room. The table was pressed against a wall under one side of the room, with a good view of the hole under the Flemish still life. I opened the suitcase. The microphone is in a flower vase? asked Lefranc. You've got to be kidding. Look at the size of those knobs. Where did you get that? A museum? 
Yes, actually, I snapped. Van de Vleert isn't running a surveillance shop. There wasn't a lot of choice. I replaced the flower vase on the table with the one from Van de Vleert's suitcase. Jean-Christophe bit his lip as I poked a hole in the tablecloth and pushed the wire through. I crawled under the table and ran the wire down to the trim along the floor. I pried this back with a screwdriver and ran the wire along it to the wall with the peephole. Then, before Jean-Christophe could complain, I used a cordless drill I'd purchased to punch a small hole through the wall and feed the wire through. Voila, I said to Jean-Christophe, putting the flowers from the previous vase into the one I'd just installed. Please fill it with water to make it look normal. Just be careful not to spill where the microphone is. I thought it was only in films, said Jean-Christophe dryly, as he left to get a pitcher of water. We moved to the corridor by the kitchen. I put the suitcase on the floor, opened it, connected the wire coming out of the wall to the ancient brass screws on the back. Then I connected the headphones. They looked exactly like the ones you see in old Second World War newsreels. Next was the reel-to-reel recorder. Apparently only the Germans had good tape-to-tape technology during the war, and Van de Vleert had given me an American model from the 1950s. Ah, moving up to Korean War technology, I see, said Lefranc, as I laid out the wires, as Van de Vleert had shown me. I connected it to the first suitcase. Van de Vleert had given us four hours of blank tape. Then I plugged both contraptions into the power outlet. Lefranc went into the private room and sat at the table and began talking. I put on the headphones and started the tape. Lefranc's voice came through perfectly. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon a great crusade, towards which we have striven these many months, he recited, continuing with as much of Eisenhower's D-Day message as he could remember, as he moved from chair to chair to make sure the whole table was audible. Lefranc rejoined me in the corridor. I checked the back door for an escape route, if things went wrong, and came back with two chairs for us to sit in as we waited. Jean-Christophe joined us for an aperitif of Muska and wished us luck. Then he gave us menus. I wasn't sure our scheme would work, but it looked like we'd be the best-fed surveillance team in history. The Tar Sands Diplomat, Chapter 26, The Sound Trap I had hardly finished my Muska when the first guest arrived, 30 minutes early. To my astonishment, it was Maxim Mashinsky. I wasn't surprised, however, that he would be the kind of man who got to the restaurant first in order to get the best seat and make sure no one talked about him behind his back. Mashinsky must have thought he was dressed like a model in Oligarch magazine. He wore an overly bold pinstripe, gold cufflinks, and a silk tie. If you've ever wondered who actually shops in the Hermes boutique at Heathrow, Mashinsky appeared to be the answer. The table was set for six. Mashinsky sat facing the door. I was expecting him to pull out his Blackberry like any businessman, but instead he pulled out a densely typed paper from his suit pocket and began to read. Jean-Christophe delivered an aperitif, which Mashinsky sipped as he reviewed the document and made notes in the margin. The next guest arrived five minutes later. It was Len Sleeth from West Can Energy. They both put their phones and batteries on the table, which seemed to have become some kind of common ritual in Brussels. What you're reading? asked Sleeth. A paper by one of my old students, said Mashinsky, on elliptic curve cryptography. You get all the fun, laughed Sleeth. I haven't done a fucking differential since engineering school. I like to stay sharp, said Mashinsky. Still trying to invent the next Bitcoin, replied Sleeth. It's bullshit. The FBI was all over Silk Road, and another Bitcoin exchange just went bankrupt. How much money have you lost on Bitcoins by now, anyway? laughed Sleeth. Mashinsky looked offended. Only idiots keep serious money in such exchanges. A username and password? With keystroke loggers and crazy girlfriends looking over your shoulder? It's a joke. 
but there are many ways to store your private keys safely offline, and you can always buy gold with them. Lefranc and I exchanged glances. I had vague memories of all those stories about bitcoins I hadn't bothered to read in the newspapers, but it was clear Lefranc had no idea what they were talking about. Sleeth was skeptical. Millions of dollars stored just as digital numbers somewhere? Mashinsky smiled. Remember, first, these transactions are anonymous. You can even blend coins to make them more untraceable. And you can easily split your money up. Have some on your smartphone wallet, put some with a different private key printed out in your safe. You can have your private keys in a super-encrypted file in five different clouds. It's very versatile. Perfect for the modern businessman, especially if the modern businessman was worried about sanctions and foreign exchange controls. You really have faith, said Sleeth. I didn't take you for a trusting kind of guy. Not faith, said Mashinsky. Remember, I'm Russian. How valuable are the million-ruble czarist railway bonds on my office wall? Or the sock full of hundred-ruble notes my father had hidden in our flat when Gorbachev cancelled them all? Look, if things carry on as they are in Donbass, then we'll all be banned from every bank outside Russia, China, and North Korea by the end of the year. He paused, as if to reflect on how closely his own freedom was tied up with that of his monies, and how much that depended, in turn, on things far beyond his own control. Mushinsky went on. Or even the paper money in your own pocket, backed by nothing but the promises of a central bank in Ottawa. He snorted at the ridiculousness of the latter idea. With virtual currency, at least we are safe from our governments. It just gives you another option to store value, like gold or real estate. Well, said Sleeth, you might be right. But our finance people like to do things the old-fashioned way. He got down to business and described how one of Westcan's exploration companies in Africa would pay Merton's shell company in Gibraltar after receiving invoices for facilitation and political risk advice. He made air quotes with his fingers around the words invoice, facilitation, and political risk advice. Yes, replied Mashinsky sardonically. We have some very good artists, and they will make you some beautiful fake invoices, clean enough to present anywhere from Luxembourg to Bermuda. Lefranc, meanwhile, was struggling to stop himself from spitting his muscat all over the wall. Nigel Merton was Sir William Friddle's right-hand man, political advisor, and former political fundraiser. So there it was, out in the open at last. Sleeth and Mashinsky were trying to bribe top European officials. And you're not worried about this being detected? asked Mashinsky. Invoices leave paper trails, even fake ones. Oh, come on, said Sleeth breezily. It's not like we're using a Swiss bank account where some bitter secretary will send the client list to the tax police. And we haven't invaded Ukraine and got sanctions on us. Someone would have to decide to look into a few payments to Avalon Risk Advisory, Inc., which is unlikely since it's just one of thousands of payments our subsidiaries make to thousands of people. And even then, if they manage to track it to Gibraltar and figure out that Avalon's corporate secretary was the cleaning lady in a certain lawyer's office, they still wouldn't know anything about the Belize company that owns Avalon and I can wind up the Belize company long before they get to it. Mushinsky smiled. Since 9-11, how much effort do you think the Americans have put into tracking this kind of shit? A lengthy discretion on shell companies, international wire transfers, and money laundering regulations ensued. Mushinsky seemed especially outraged that the government specifically targeted prominent figures. They arrested the governor of New York, he complained, and that was just for making payments to prostitutes, not even receiving money. I know, I know, said Sleeth. You've told me this before. Spitzer's payments didn't even crack the $10,000 limit. What about you? You're not on the sanctions list, yet anyway. But I'm guessing you're not far below the line for the next list. Mashinsky shrugged. 
I've taken precautions. I'm in a gray zone. Theoretically, my companies can still raise money in the West. In reality, the banks I work with know the White House will screw them if they go anywhere near me. So the fucking hypocrites just sit there and spin me bullshit about risk parameters and tell me how sorry they are. He paused, again as if reflecting on his business and his life. Sometimes the gray zone is where you make the most money, he observed. I guess that's why you need to move fast, mused Sleeth. Anyway, our finance people aren't worried. They've done this before. And we're just an innocent Canadian oil company, not some Al-Qaeda bad guys. I will pay my share to Nigel as we agreed, but a different way, if you don't mind. Only the paranoid survive, as Andras Groff likes to say. Sleeth looked blank, and Mashinsky explained that Andras Groff was the real name for the CEO of Intel, Andy Grove, before he emigrated from Soviet-era Hungary to the United States. Communism was good for teaching survival skills, and no one can beat a Russian math education. That must be why there are so many Russians studying at MIT, replied Sleeth with a laugh. Used to be pretty good in hockey, too. I can't quite remember. Can you remind me how Team Russia did at the Sochi Olympics? Fuck off, said Mashinsky flatly. Thought you'd like that one, said Sleeth. Do you think Nigel can deliver? He described the approval they needed for the Antwerp tanker terminal and heavy oil refinery upgrades, and how Friddle was supposed to stop the commission from naming Canadian oil as dirty and high carbon. Mashinsky thought about this for a moment. The environment commissioner is weak. Friddle's hand is so far up her ass that when she talks you can see Friddle's school ring moving. And anyway, that's why it is half up front and half when we get what we want. And I assure you that when you add your figure to mine, we have their full attention. They talk some more about shell companies, fake invoices, facilitation payments, and offshore banking centers for a few minutes. Then they spoke about numbers. Lefranc and I exchanged glances. The figures were surprisingly large. Then Sleeth stood up, downed his aperitif, and buttoned his coat. Tell me, said Mashinsky, as Sleeth prepared to leave, that Kokol asshole in your prime minister's office isn't going to do anything stupid, is he? Kravinsky thinks Russia's always trying to screw Ukraine, replied Sleeth. He's right, laughed Mashinsky. That's what Ukraine's for. But what does he care? His grandparents got out, not like mine. Don't worry, replied Sleeth. Being Ukrainian is just a hobby for him. He knows his boss is on side with this. Sleeth looked at his watch. Time for a lap around the block. We don't want everyone else finding you and me all alone together cooking up schemes. Mashinsky pulled Sleeth's chair back to its original place and continued reading his math paper. That's a wrap for episode 22 of The Tarzan's Diplomat. The bugged dinner at La Renda Afrique will continue next week, and you can download the next episode on iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcasting platforms. 